Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. So I'm going to tell you that the... So I get, I get some grief sometimes because sometimes I don't title my sermons. And part of the reason is, is because it's usually not until Saturday after the bulletin is printed that I know what it is I actually want to talk about. So I'm not sure that's the best title. And so you can help me later as we're coming out. You say, well, here's what I would have titled it. That might actually be helpful. But I do know that today I want to talk about being born again, but I want to start by talking about religion. I want to talk about religion. And here's where I want to start. I want to announce, if you all didn't know, or if this is a surprise to you, we can talk about it later, but I want you to know that I consider myself an unapologetically religious person. You're like, dude, you wear a dress on Sundays. You better be. <laughs> but that's not a terribly popular statement today, yes? That's not what, that is not like sort of a great way to like get people to come around you and talk about things. Like, so much more popular to be spiritual but not religious. And I'm here to tell you that I am both spiritual and religious, and I think it's a wonderful way to live. But I make no bones about it. Why? Yes, Christianity is a relationship with God. That we are not judged by what we do, we are rather judged by what Christ has done. Yes, I understand all this. But like the Apostle James, I have always sort of felt like, well, how do I live that relationship? How do I show that I care about my relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, whatever that is, that is religion. I talk about this with my wife all the time. I was like, does it, do, does it mean less that I tell her I love you all the time? Like, does that make me less of a husband? No, you all would look back at me and be like, brother, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Yes, so it is with our relationship with God. The things that we do repeatedly are the ways, are the things that form us. And that's what religion is. Religion is the repeated actions based upon beliefs or principles that shape my faith, that shape my life. And religion has this really powerful effect in that it allows us to create a shared life. That we share things that we do and that connects us one to another. We have a shared language. I mean, think about it. We share the language of the Bible. Even go back to our prayer of the day. That is not typical language that you would use at the grocery store, but it is appropriate language for those of us who come to worship. We have a shared language and that brings us together. We also have a responsibility to pass on what we know. Religion helps us do that. If I wasn't allowed to teach our confirmands the Lord's Prayer because, you know, that's a religious prayer, how would I teach them to pray? These repeated actions give us something that brings us together and allows us to pass these principles and beliefs along. And so when I see someone, whether they're Christian or not, who observes certain seasons, prays certain ways, and has particular behaviors, some of them wonderfully peculiar, like the guy who wears a dress on Sunday morning, I'm fascinated. Let's do this. You're religious. I'm religious. Let's go. And so when Nicodemus, in this most famous passage, is described as a Pharisee, here's what I need you to know. I'm in. I'm with Nicodemus on this one. I'm pro-Pharisee because Pharisees were wonderfully religious. 
Now, we're used to thinking of them as very negative. And yes, they get portrayed in the Gospels very negatively. That's because the Gospel writers kind of assumed everybody knew who and what the Pharisees were and what they were about. And so they could skip over the explanation to some of the critiques. And we'll come to the critiques. But the more I learn about the Pharisees, the more I'm like, you know what? Those guys sound a lot like me. They arose out of, and we don't know a ton about them, but they arose, our best guess is out of the Maccabean revolt. And you're like, oh gosh, here he goes on history. No, just real quick, suffice it to say that the temple had been destroyed, the altar was desecrated, that... The king at the time came and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Like, and let your Jewish, brain, your Jewish imagination kind of go there for a second. Everything was desecrated. And it was the Maccabees who said, we have to set this right. And so they push out their occupiers. And they seek to restore the faith that was theirs. That's what the Pharisees are doing. In a world where their religion had broken down, they were trying to hold on to the good. And they functioned as a social movement that inspired many. Yes, they also created some enemies. The Sadducees saw things very differently than the Pharisees did. But at the end of the day, the Pharisees set out to affect healthy change and healthy tradition in their communities. They took the text of their scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, what they would just call their Hebrew scriptures. They took them painfully seriously. And they took the culture that had been handed down to them equally seriously. And they sought sought to teach it and pass it along in a faithful way. And they wanted others to come along. They wanted people to care about this. They say, hey, you're, you're you're Abraham's seed, you're Abraham's family. Here's how we are. We want you to come along. Don't abandon this. Wrap your arms around it. And in this way, one might say that they were wonderfully evangelistic. On all of this, they feel a lot like us and that they believed in resurrection. Not everybody did. They had this unique belief that God was going to raise the dead. And so they were about the work of recovering something cultural and religious of value in difficult and tumultuous times. Those are my guys. I feel that when I read that. I feel that when I go back and look at the history of what they were trying to do. And I wonder if I'm not alone in that. Because remember, we talked about Lent last week as it originated as a time of preparation for those about to be baptized. And ultimately, the early church started to say, well, if it's good enough for the newly baptized, then it's good enough for all of us. And so it is a time of formation. And so as I think about connecting to our ancestors, holding on to something of value and living in faithful ways, I suspect that those that were about to be baptized and those who were serious about walking the path of Lent, and presumably, I assume all of you, could identify with the Pharisees in this way. To say that there are things worth saving and we should be about saving that. And those who were preparing for baptism, think about their point of view for a second. They most assuredly would have felt excited because they're about to enter into this, they're preparing for this ceremony, this religious ceremony that brings them into a religious community. That community would have given them, as we've already said, a shared life, a shared language, receiving and giving what they had learned. It gave them a place, a community, a people. And most certainly for those newly baptized, there would be a zeal and enthusiasm for quote-unquote doing it the right way. You ever seen this in converts, whether it's religious or otherwise? You step in and all of a sudden everybody's got to prove that I'm one of you guys. I'm going to do it right. Happens all the time. 
And for us on the Lenten journey, we celebrate a liturgical season by fasting, charity, and prayer. We are being religious. We would say, you know what, the Pharisees are a pretty good example of that. And so let me ask the question that I'm sure you want me to ask. So why does Jesus have such a reputation for being against the Pharisees? What's the deal? Well, here's my best guess. Jesus said, not to the Pharisees, but to his followers, he says, I came that they might have life. And he goes on to say, and that they might have life more abundantly. But I came that they might have life. That's what Jesus is about. And here's the thing about religion. Religion, for all of its good, is neither alive nor dead. Religion can't be alive. Only people can. Religion, as described in the scriptures, can only be true or false. It cannot be alive or dead. And so because of this, we can practice a true religion and still be dead inside. We can practice a true religion and still be unchanged. We can practice religion and be the best at it and still kind of be obnoxious. You ever met these folks? Super religious and like, I'm not sure that I like you all that much. For what it's worth, I've been that guy. And because religion is fundamentally a human construct, it can be neither alive nor dead, religion is susceptible to all of our human realities. It is susceptible to our moods, to our life situation. It is susceptible to politics, to ego, to agenda, to emotions, to manipulation. It is a tool, just like a hammer. And just as a hammer can be used for driving in nails or for destruction, so can religion. Religion is volatile. It is a volatile human construct. Because it is volatile in that it is, when it is healthy, it will change and develop and grow so that we can change and develop and grow. But it's equally possible for religion to mutate and metastasize and to become a cancer. It is so easy for the zeal we feel when we set out to turn into a false religion. <clears throat> and as the author Fleming Rutledge, whose book is I'm supposed to be reading right now, she describes religion as a set of beliefs projected out of humanity's needs, wishes, longings, and fears. And what she's saying is in, it, when religion becomes toxic, it's because we take our needs and we make them God's agenda. We take our concerns and we make them God's agenda. And that is dangerous. And this is what Christians have always said. That's what happened to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees became all the trappings and none of the guts. The Pharisees wandered towards power instead of towards lowliness. Pharisees became arbiters of the faith <clears throat> Which made, them, which made them rigid and elitist and judgmental. They made the scriptures, which they loved so much, they made the scriptures an end to themselves, which left them open to the accusations of Jesus. Here's what Jesus says to the Pharisees later. He goes, you tithe mint and cumin, these spices that had great value, you tithe them, but you neglect the weightier matters of justice. Jesus is like, you get the problem here, Right? Furthermore, Jesus says, you clean the outside of the cup and the outside of the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. 
Religion is a tool, but it can also hide the worst parts of ourselves. And no one argued this better than the Apostle Paul. We didn't read Paul this morning, but Paul had something to say about all this. Paul himself was a Pharisee. And Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, he says, you must understand this, that in the last days of distress, in the last days, distressing times will come, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And here's the kicker, holding to the outward form of godliness, but denying its power. Paul, a Pharisee, saw what was going on. Lover of holding to the outward form of godliness, but denying its power. And so religion in this way can box us in, can reduce our creativity and our imagination. It can make us more judgmental rather than less judgmental. And that was the situation that Nicodemus finds himself in. Pulled at one time by the traditions of his ancestors that he had questions about and pulled by this guy named Jesus who was doing it all wrong and yet all right at the same time and he couldn't figure it out. So when Jesus meets Nick at night, let that sink in, he doesn't understand. He's confused. In so many ways, Jesus is a rabbi. He calls him a rabbi. And he embodied, Jesus is embodying the traditions of his people. Jesus said otherwise. He said, not a jot or tittle will disappear from the law. Jesus was not anti-law. But Jesus, just a chapter ago, had gone into the temple and had overturned the tables. Nicodemus cannot figure out how this guy can be both things. What is going on? He can't figure out how Jesus is doing miracles, which is a sign of God's power. He can't figure out why there's a crowd when Jesus doesn't seem to be in the positions of power and and all that. Nicodemus is of the opinion as he comes to this conversation, if you follow the traditions, God will bless you, except Jesus isn't following the traditions and there seems to be power in what Jesus is doing. Nick can't figure it out. And so he comes in the dark. Not just the dark of night. He comes in the darkness of his own mind. He's confused. He's got questions. You ever been in that place where you're just like, I don't know what God is up to. This doesn't make sense to me. That can be a dark place. He's confused. And commentators suspect that he's also afraid of being caught. He might be a little scared, you know? Religious people are afraid of being caught with the wrong people. Well, Jesus wasn't exactly the right guy at that particular moment. And so Nick's like, well, let's talk. Jesus, can we, can you and me, we just meet outside for a second? And he tries to be cool about it. And he says, Rabbi, you do all these wonderful things. You must be sent from God. And Jesus is like, come on now, let's go. And he says, you must be born again. Jesus gets right to the point. You must be born again. As we read it this morning, you must be born from above. But I'm going to ask you to hold on to that translation. You must be born again for a minute. You must be born again or you must be born from above is an expression that means being born from the top or being born from above. Like, what does that that look like? Well, it means to start over from the beginning. Consider musicians. Musicians. Musicians, when rehearsing a song, will say, well, let's take it from the top, which means to start all over back at the beginning. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, if you're serious about this, you've got to take it from the top. If you're serious about doing what God is, being a part of what God is doing in the world, you've got to start all over again. 
That's a big ask. Now, I'm not sure if Nicodemus understood what Jesus was saying or not. I think there's some ambiguity here, and that makes it fun. Because he goes, must a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And we're all going, this is a weird reading. Yeah, it kind of is. But Nicodemus is either taking Jesus literally, as religious people are wont to do, or he's saying, look, to start all over again is as impossible as climbing back into the womb and being born again. He's like, how am I an old man, a formed man, who has spent my whole life in this line of work, who has spent my whole life learning these traditions and upholding them, how am I supposed to start all over again? You tell me, Jesus, how am I supposed to do that? But it doesn't really matter if he understands or not. The ask is a big one. And Jesus' instruction to this very religious man is clear. Jesus is asking Nicodemus to completely rethink everything he has devoted his life to, to radically uproot his core beliefs, which may mean jettisoning a lot of what makes Nicodemus Nicodemus. And it might mean having to radically reimagine what the kingdom of God looks like. And Jesus says all of this to an old man. But this isn't the first time God, or the Son of God, has made such a statement. Rachel read this morning that God comes to Abraham, himself an old man, And he says, I want you to uproot and I want you to head in a direction. And Abraham's like, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What's going on? And God's like, just go and together we'll figure it out. Later on, we didn't read it this morning, but later on, God comes to Abraham's wife and says, you're going to have a kid. And he goes, I'm an old man. That's a good one. And Sarah laughs at him. All of this to say, God has a habit of sending us wherever where we are on an uprooted journey towards something new. Ultimately, Jesus is not asking us to adhere to certain beliefs or certain behaviors. These rigid boxes, they serve us, but Jesus is not here to say, here's the list. Here are the Ten Commandments, so to speak. Do these, and here's your golden ticket. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving us a new self. Do we hear these words of Jesus? Because there was no one else who was doing the commandments, so to speak, better than Nicodemus. And even to Nicodemus, he says, you have so much to learn. And I imagine Jesus saying this with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. You have so much to learn. You have just gotten started, young man. And he asks the same thing of us. With a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face, he says, come on, I want you to come with me. And we're either going to decide to stay exactly where we are, because we've worked hard to get here, or we'll take a leap. A logic-defying, risk-it-all, never-look-back leap of faith. A leap that believes what Jesus says when he says, the Spirit will blow wherever it wants to, far outside of the bounds of what you and I might consider proper religion. Why does God do this? Because God so loved the world. Friends, this is about love. God is not asking us to do a single thing that God himself did not do. Because before God asked us to take a leap, before Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, it was God who took the leap when he sent Jesus to come and become flesh and walk on this earth. 
And it was God who sent his son to take the leap that the way to save the world was not with a sword and with a horse and with an army. It was the leap of that the way you save the world is through an instrument of death, through crucifixion. God's been taking leaps for us since the day we were created. He says that is the way of God. Because the heart of God is not a religious act. The heart of God is love. The heart of God is not a set of behaviors or belief. The heart of God is a heart that longs for you and loves you, that does not seek your destruction, that does not seek to rigidly box you in, but rather to give you complete newness of life in the power of the Spirit that blows wherever it will. It's at this point in the sermon that the ancient preacher would have turned to those in baptism. I'm not picking on you for today, but we're just going to pretend this section over here. Would turn to the newly baptized and be said, what about you? You who are about to join Jesus on that cross in baptism. You ready for this? And since we don't have anybody sitting over there, I'll turn to you all. Travelers on this Lenten road. This religious road. And I'll ask you the same. Y'all ready to take that leap? How much are you willing to rethink yourself? How much are you willing to rethink God to become the person that God has for you to be? Now, some of us, and I would, I would have been and still am in so many ways this guy. I'm an idealist. So when somebody poses that question to me, I'm like, let's go. I'm your guy. I'll do it all. I'll give up everything. <laughs> some of the wiser heads in here are like, that's cute, Reverend. And you should. Shouldn't be too quick or cavalier about this because as I say to every confirmation class, don't say things to God you don't mean and don't make promises to God you have no intention of keeping because God may very well ask it of you, not because of religion, not because of condemnation or judgment, but because of love. But ask yourself, what if Jesus challenges you to become a self that would dismantle the ways we understand ourselves? Would you be willing to give up your own self-image? Would we be willing to give up sort of our understanding as St. Mary's? Would you give up your UCC or your reformed self? Would you give up your conservative self? Would you give up your liberal self? Would you give up your I'm quite content where I am self? Would you give up your I've been here my whole life self? Would you give up the self that is always on the move, always dodging and ducking so that you never have to actually be with others? Would you give up your, I'm a pretty good Christian the way I am self? Would you be willing to give up your, I really hope so-and-so hears this sermon today self? Because we might have to. Because the wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it goes, where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What might God ask of us? And is it worth it? Well, here's the thing. And I want to land on this. We only ever read Nicodemus. And it shows up a couple of times. But Nicodemus always gets read at this time of the year. And we never quite finish out the story of Nicodemus. You know the last time we hear of him, right? He goes away from Jesus He's kind of floating around the edges. He pops in here or there. But the time Nick did, the, the spotlight shines again on Nick is that along with the Marys, he's the only guy standing there at the cross. He's the only one who was there. Not Peter, 
Not John, not Paul, only Nick. Nick is standing there, and it was Nicodemus who saw to it that that body was buried. He did a wonderfully religious act, but he did it out of love. When it came all the way down to it, we can see through Nicodemus' actions, through his religion, that his heart was changed forever. He took the leap and rewrote it all. Nicodemus was born again. And we celebrate him to this day. He was born from above. He took it from the top. And he was there at the cross. And because he was there at the cross, it also means, I presume, that he was one of the first to hear the good news that Christ the Lord is risen today. And so, friends, leave you with this question. Are you willing to take that leap? Are we willing to be religious people, but also say, God, you can have all of that if it means that I am renewed on the inside, if I become the person you are called to be? Will we make, a, make this pilgrimage with Nicodemus and with Christians untold who have walked this way before us? I bet you reflect on that, pray on that, and see where this Lenten journey might very well take you on.